welcome to the podcast series, Abide With Me. My name is Talene Saunders, your host for this three-part informational series on death and dying. The goal of this series is to help prepare for end of life. In the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, authors B.J. Miller and Shoshana Berger point out that only a small fraction of us, 10 to 20 percent, will die without warning. The rest of us will have time to get to know what's going to end our lives. As disturbing as this may be, it does afford us time to live with this knowledge, get used to it, and respond. Death can be a heavy topic, and I encourage you to take a break if you become overwhelmed. Similarly, if you are having thoughts of suicide, there is help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. with Jim Hymans, and I'm going to start out with the first question that I ask all the guests. Jim, how do you want to be remembered? You know, that's such a a great question, and in my line of work, I ask that question often with uh, patients we work with and with families about their patients, about the patients. But asking myself, um, how do I want to be remembered? A person who who was compassionate, um, loving, understanding that would give a person the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time uh, verify, (laughs) trust and verify, Mm -hmm. uh, to build trusting relationships, but also to uh, also be mindful of um, the relationship and challenges in those relationships. I would love to be known as a person of integrity with what I say is the same as who I am. That's nice. Thank you so much for sharing. That's a vulnerable question. Mm-hmm. So let's start out. Your background is in hospice, and maybe that'll be the viewpoint from which you're speaking. So what do you wish people knew about hospice today? You know, that's another great question. It's sometimes a hidden secret out there about hospice. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people first hear the word hospice, they think of dying. Mm-hmm. And certainly it is a program for people who are dying, but it's also a program of how to live your life for as long as you have it. The best thing to know about hospice is that you don't have to be dying to enjoy the benefits of hospice. As a human being, we're on this trajectory of health where we are going along, we're healthy, we have no no concerns, and so, somewhere along the line we develop a disease or a an illness of some sort, and we treat that, and we treat that to become better, and we treat it to have a resolution. And at some point, sometimes those diseases become chronic. Mm-hmm. And then we start to look at, okay, it's chronic. Now we're moving more into symptom management, and how do I live my life with this chronic disease? And as life progresses on, that chronic disease can become what's called terminal that there is a point in time where this disease will end the life. Hospice is about being at that point where uh, there is a chronic illness that is looking towards end of life, and how can we no longer seek for treatment but look at symptom management and comfort. 
So how long can people be in hospice? I always think of it as maybe a week or less. What's average and what does that look like for a timeline? I would say average stay on hospice is uh, 30, 60, 90 days. So if it's a Medicare program, what does that mean for finances? Being a Medicare program, anybody who has a Medicare benefit, it is a 100% paid service for the patient. And what kind of services are available? They will receive uh, nurse case management services overseen by a hospice physician. They will receive aid services, uh, services from hospice social worker, a hospice chaplain. We have volunteers that can come and visit with the patient. Uh, We have music therapy, massage therapy, and then we also, for some of our areas, have pet therapy or what we call hospice Mm. hounds. Along with those benefits, we pay for the medications that are related to the terminal illness, all the equipment that's necessary for pain and symptom management as well. Could you talk a little bit about the cost of healthcare and hospice? Yeah, studies have shown that the last four to six months of life can be quite costly with increased hospitalizations, um, transitional care time, and then extended care at home. And typically with our older population, they come back at a, at a more debilitated state, at a lower state of functioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the cost of health care at end of life can get quite high. And Even if it's covered under Medicare, mm-hmm. somebody's going to be paying for it. That's right. And with hospice, that cost is significantly changed and reduced where we can maybe get the same effect long-term with a progressing illness where the cost of hospice, where we provide that comfort and symptom management and uh, not the traumatic experience of hospitalizations and transitional care units and and transitioning back uh, to a different uh, state of living. Right. At the end of four months, the patient could still experience end of life, but it's just such a different journey, That's a right. different fourth, four-month journey. That's right. Okay. So, Jim, if a family is starting to look for hospice, what are some things they should look for? We want people to make an educated uh, decision. So in getting, um, what is the word? What do a lot of people say about this hospice program you may be considering? Um, getting some references. Um, Are they Medicare certified Mm. is another question to ask, or are they accredited? Um, What is the family's role in hospice care, and what is the family's role and expectations? Um, What is the uh, living situation, hospice in a nursing home, hospice in a facility, hospice facility, Mm -hmm. or residence, or private residence? Right. um, And how they provide that care. How would they provide rapid response? In case something happens in the middle of the night with symptom management, how do they manage crisis response? And then the aftercare, how is bereavement services handled with the hospice program? How do they keep in touch with the family afterwards for that follow-up? And when someone's in hospice, they're automatically connected to the to the coroner with the county, right? There's an automatic connection there? Yeah, the patient would be registered early with the medical examiner's office of that county for an expected death, so there is no investigation that would have to happen. Right. And the medical examiners know then that's an expected death, and we help the family call, um, make the report of death, and that medical examiner, the, the things they need to know is who is the legal next of kin, 
and what funeral home is to be used. Okay. And then we help uh, families make those arrangements. Right. And if, of course, there is an unexpected death without hospice, the family just calls 911. Correct. Right. And for hospice programs, uh, Medicare has done over the last couple of years um, a comparison for hospice programs throughout the nation and through the state. And it's uh, the hospice compare on the Medicare.gov website. Okay. That's good to know. So what is the difference between hospice and palliative care? Yeah, that's an interesting definition between the two. And what I usually tell people is hospice is a type of palliative care. Palliative means to treat symptoms, to offer comfort. Mm -hmm. And going back to what I was saying before, when there is a chronic illness that limits your life to be able to do the things that you wanted to do previously, Mm -hmm. but it's not terminal... That's where palliative care starts. We can't cure this diagnosis. We can't cure this disease anymore. Okay. So we're not looking for curative. Now we're looking for palliative or comfort. But without a terminal diagnosis, so then it's palliative care. Okay. No more aggressive treatment, just comfort and symptom management. Because sometimes the treatment can be worse than the disease itself. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And with some chronic diseases, with heart disease or lung disease, you can live with that for years, but at some point it does become terminal, and that's when it can convert over to hospice. Okay. What is advanced care planning or an advanced care directive? You know, advanced care planning, that uh, relatively, that's only been really around for the last 20 years or so. And the whole idea is somebody, when they are healthy, can make a decision about what their life would be like when they do have a terminal illness and when they can no longer speak for themselves. Um, It's about identifying somebody or some people that if I can no longer speak for myself, and not even from a terminal diagnosis, if something where I was to be hit out on the street here and I was unable to speak for myself for Mm -hmm. weeks, days, months, who have I elected to be my agent? So then that person with that record will be able to make all the medical decisions that what my wishes would be. And the advanced care directive not only lists those people or those agents, but it's a form that takes you through questions of what about DNR, DNI? What about CPR? What about uh, breathing machines? What about intravenous tube feedings? It takes you through that process to discuss it. And that's the whole idea with the advanced care directive and why we want families to do it early because then it starts a conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's more about the conversation and discussion of who knows what my wishes are so that if I can no longer speak for myself, they, they know what it is. So even if there is no advanced care directive, the question is who knows this patient the best and understands what their wishes would be. Okay, so in the state of Minnesota, if you do not have an advanced care directive or a health care agent, who does get to make the decisions? Uh, that, that again, goes by conversation. Who are the caregivers of the patient? Who knows that patient the best? Who would be making uh, the decisions the most uh, along the lines of what that patient would want? We also have to follow the legal next of kin. Right. And so how does that go? So that can be if there is a person that has uh, no spouse, it would be the oldest living child. Um, Typically, if uh, 
uh, somebody is married, it falls to that legal spouse mm-hmm. that makes makes healthcare decisions. Um, sometimes there is no family. If there's no, sometimes patients will have a guardian or a conservator that will make those decisions. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, and what hospice does is we not only work with the patient, but we see the patient's system as part of our responsibility. So then having those conversations openly about life review and understanding what the wishes of this loved one would be, we can come to those conclusions. So is this a death panel? Do people ever ask that? Oh, that that was that was a tough one to get through when it was labeled the death panel. Unfortunately, what that did is it it made it sound like there were persons making decisions for a patient or a loved one mm-hmm. when really advanced care directives and making that a legal document is about let's start at the beginning with the patient's wishes and then how we can support that. Right. So, Jim, what's the difference between a healthcare directive and a POLST, P-O-L-S-T? That's another great question, and it really is an evolution of patient's wishes. Like I said, the first important part is to have conversations with loved ones about what are their wishes if they could no longer speak for themselves. The second piece would be writing it down. Mm-hmm. Any kind of documentation of, if this ever happens to me, this is what I would like. Mm-hmm. The third step would be naming an agent, saying, okay, now you have my written documents. Now, if I cannot speak for myself, you're going to do it. And what the POLST does is that's a fairly more of a short form, and it's a provider's order for life-sustaining treatment. Okay. And when a person is facing a terminal diagnosis or end of life and or they have an advanced care directive and we know what their wishes are, the post makes it an order from the doctor that it's listed on there. What is their wish for CPR? Yes or no. Mm -hmm. What is their wish for any breathing apparatuses or transfer to the hospital ICU units? Yes or no. Um, Artificial tube feedings and nutrition and antibiotics. Whatever the choices are made on that form, it is signed by a doctor, and that becomes the legal doctor's order then, so anything happen to that patient. And then the, the process with the post is some of our patients do come on, even though they have a terminal illness, still want to be resuscitated, still want ventilation. You know, we, we can work with that, but then we teach them what that may look like and what that looks like when you have an advanced illness. Okay, so what does it look like? What do you wish people knew about life-saving treatment? You know, when we are working with people who have a, a debilitated state or they have a terminal illness or they're in a compromised health condition, and when we think about CPR and intubation with ventilators, we only can see what we know of from media. Mm-hmm. We see CPR being done on TV shows and we see it in many hospital shows out there, mm-hmm. but When a person is in a debilitated state or compromised health condition, recovering from something like CPR, which is a very traumatic event to go through, remembering that the person's providing CPR, they are literally pounding on your chest to get that heart started Mm -hmm. in a very aggressive way. With uh, debilitated state or compromised health conditions, there's often 
uh, bones that can be broken and people can be put in a much lesser state than they were previous to receiving any CPR. Mm -hmm. So for somebody with underlying health conditions, let's say you're 98 years old, you have dementia, a history of heart disease, diabetes, this could be very traumatic for that person. It could be very traumatic. It would be very traumatic. And the chances of them even recovering to what their previous state was or getting out of the hospital is minimal. It's only in the 19, 18% chance. Okay. So these are things to consider. Mm -hmm. And so when you fill out your health care directive, do you suggest that people even sit down with their doctor and talk with their doctor about what would be appropriate for them? I think it would be great to sit down with their doctor and have an honest conversation with their doctor in how do they see their disease progression? Mm -hmm. You know, where are we at with it? Asking the what if questions. What if treatment is no longer available? Then what is your recommendation from the doctor? Mm -hmm. Doctors would be more than happy for a patient to come to them and talk to them about, let's talk about end of life and how you see that and, and what would be uh, the best for me. Right. I think I filled out my first health care directive when I was a young mother and my husband and I were going to go on a vacation. And I remember saying, do everything you can because mm -hmm. I want to finish raising these kids. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm a little bit older, I keep looking back at my health care directive. Nothing much has changed. But how often do you think we should be looking at our health care directive and doing updates? That's a, that's a great question. And I think any transition in life, like you said, having raising children are one chapter in life when you move to the next transition into the next chapter where your kids are raised and, and gone and what's your health state at that time, mm -hmm. any of those transitions, um, transitions into retirement age, what spurs more health care directive review are when loved ones or friends start to pass on. I'm mm -hmm. at the age now where, you know, I see some friends get sick all of a sudden, mm -hmm. and I better start thinking about that again, the what ifs. Right. And where do you keep your advanced care directive? Where do you keep that? We suggest that uh, one permanent copy is kept with somebody, and then make five, six, ten copies that go to your medical clinic. Mm-hmm. If you live in a facility, a senior type or assisted type living facility, you have let them have a copy. However many children you have, each one of them should have a copy. Mm -hmm. And one always on hand, just in case it needs to be presented. Good. That's good advice. Thank you. How should someone choose a healthcare agent? The healthcare agent, that's somebody who, one, you've had a lot of conversation with. Somebody that knows what your, like we even said before, what your legacy even is. Mm -hmm. You know, your private conversations of, boy, if that ever, ever happened to me, and this person is accepting your story or accepting your answers and are, are holding that as, as truth and as, um, as your wish. Anybody who you're that comfortable with to share your 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 wishes. Sometimes when there are siblings, it's about who, which one of the siblings or which one of the children should be the agent. And again, there are times when, you know, that may cause some challenging dynamics in the family, but it still is 
the best person who you've had conversations with of what if this ever happened to me? Yeah, so the most important thing there is conversations mm-hmm. so people know where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. How do you start a conversation like that? I really start with the what ifs. And I use my example. It's, you know, it's not about making decisions. If I have a terminal illness, I, my wife needs to know what my wishes are if something would happen to me. Mm-hmm. So I kind of take the pressure off of it being last wishes. It's about who knows me the best to make, make my wishes. Mm-hmm. Asking about the what ifs. When you're working with patients and families and they know other family members or other friends who have died or are ill, you know, what if? Have you ever thought about what if you were in the same state as your neighbor? Okay. Uh, just kind of taking it off their shoulders about asking what what do you want? It's like, what if what if you were in that state? What 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 would be your wishes? Right. Another whole approach too is what don't you want? That's true. Sometimes we have to take the other approaches. It's not so much about what your wishes are, but what are you most afraid of? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your biggest concern? And then working from that to develop a plan around that. What are some people's things they don't want? It comes down to the point about I don't want to be on a machine. I don't want to suffer. Mm-hmm. And we kind of ask, what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Suffering can be loneliness. Suffering can be uh, pain. Uh, suffering can be environmental, being alone in the home. Mm-hmm. Many many wishes are I don't want to die at home. Many wishes are I want to die at home. Right. <laughs> so those, uh, whatever their concerns are. And uh, oftentimes the concerns, uh, the fears are, what about my family? You know, I don't want them, I don't want to be a burden to them. Right. I don't want them to have to see this or I don't want them to have to experience this, which opens up great conversations of, you know, what um, end-of-life journey looks like, but also being able to start expressing, so what is your concern with your family? When we meet with families, I always I, I tell the story that I would meet with uh, the mom as the patient and she would say, don't, you know, don't tell my kids about my terminal illness. I don't want to worry uh-huh. them. And then I would have a conversation with the family, and they said, now, don't mention mom has a terminal illness. You know, that's, <laughs> we don't want to worry her. It's like, they right, both already know. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's the perspective to come from with healthcare directors. Everybody already knows. Right. They're on it's, the same page. Yeah. It's just who starts it and, and who, um, who wants to have that conversation. We're all willing to. We all want to. We just want somebody to start it. And that's something that the social worker can help with, Mm -hmm. as well as getting care for the patient and the patient's family. Mm -hmm. So they can advocate for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. So what's the difference between a healthcare agent and a power of attorney? Uh, We're just uh, talking about that right now. And I I really want to remove that power of attorney for healthcare, that term. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because power of attorney, when you mention that to somebody, oftentimes is it's the first thought is, oh, I have that financial power of attorney. And right. I have the ability to, you know, work with the finances and that sort of thing. So they think it's done. Right. So we have to be very mindful of not only asking for the power of attorney, but who is their healthcare directive or healthcare agent. And sometimes those are terms that are not familiar with. We think of healthcare power of attorney or right. power of attorney for healthcare. So really asking just boldly, do you have a healthcare directive? 
And if you do, who have you named to make decisions for you? Right. Honoring Choices Minnesota has um, a healthcare directive that's very good and in, in all different languages. Um, there are other resources online like the Conversation Project, which also adds to having the conversation and then um, advanced care directive planning. Any hospital or physician's office mm -hmm. would have them. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of churches do, especially if they have a parish nurse. That's right. What happens when the body dies? That's a great question. Of course, it's unique for each patient and each illness. But with the help of hospice, we achieve the ultimate comfort for the patient of whatever that is, whatever comfort means to them. And with treating comfort, we see anxiety as distressing. Mm -hmm. So we want to not only treat pain, but anxiety, because it does take some work to die. Right. It, um, especially if you are alert and oriented, there's a lot of mind work that has to take place to be in that spot to say, I am ready to go. That reminds me that I am often humbled by that, about what courage it takes for somebody to come to that point where they say, I am, I am ready to go. Mm-hmm. I told my grandma, I remember, when she was actively dying, I said, Grandma, you taught us how to live mm -hmm. with such dignity and poise, and you are also teaching us how to die. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciated that. Um, it takes a lot of courage. It does. And I think we really have to underscore that. The more comfort we can provide to the patient, which means from the nurse case manager, spiritual comfort, existential comfort. Uh, we believe that one of the final things is the hearing for the patients. So anytime families can continue to give the gifts to them of thanking them for their life, for any forgivenesses or I'm sorry's, mm -hmm. any expressions of love, and then we'll be okay, and it's okay to go. Okay. And we'll be okay, kind of like talking with moms. It's letting moms know that you did a good job. We're, we're all going to be okay. Loved ones need to hear that it's okay. We're going to be okay. And you can say this even when the person is unresponsive mm -hmm. or seems unresponsive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it matters. Point being, the more we can provide comfort, the more that person can have a comfortable death. And when they are comfortable, death is so peaceful and so beautiful because you see this transformation from dying to finishing is the best way I can put it. Um, this transformation of whatever little life is there is now the spirit has moved on. It's almost a physical sense of watching that spirit leave the body. And it's interesting, we're such human beings that even when we are around the body and we know the patient has passed, you still want to see breathing. Your mind's eye still says, I think, you know, I still see that person if, if they're alive. Yeah. But when, when death happens, there's just such a release of whatever anxiety was there, and it's just, it's just peaceful. I have a lot of families who say, I didn't know if I wanted to be here for that. Right. But I'm so glad I was here for that. Yeah. So you're encouraging them mm -hmm. to not be afraid, to continue to be that family member. And then allow them to be afraid. Some family members mm -hmm. saying, I can't be here for this, and really honoring that. And Absolutely. And having them be okay with that. Yeah. And allowing 
what would mom's wish be? You know, does she want you hovering around her right. at this point? Or yeah. would she rather say, go and do your stuff, just go? So having those conversations, you know, because right. they often, families often ask, you know, I, I feel like I need to be there. And it's like, well, what would your mom want? Well, she'd want me to go up to the cabin like I was supposed to, but then yeah. do what your mom said. Yeah. So those conversations really help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jim, I think that we're going to leave it there. That's a beautiful way to end our discussion. And I really appreciate your time and your willingness to be here with us. Oh, I so appreciate it. Anytime I can talk about this subject and shed any light on it, I'm I'm there. Oh, you're doing a wonderful service. Thank you. Thank you. Abide With Me is a reference to a Christian hymn. Henry Francis Light wrote this text in the late summer of 1847 and died in November of that same year. The text was inspired by the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 29, in which the two travelers to Emmaus ask Jesus to stay with us for it is nearly evening. In the hymn, evening is a metaphor for the end of life. The Christian perspective offers comfort and hope as God walks with us through all of life's transitions. This podcast is a ministry of Augustana Lutheran Church in West St. Paul, Minnesota. They can be found online at augustana.com. A special thank you to my friend, Paul D'Amico Carper, who played the hymn at just the right tempo. This podcast was recorded and edited by Marshall Saunders at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting. They can be found online at mnpodcasting.com. Thank you.